Hello and welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. If you like American Catholic history, become a supporter at Locals or Patreon. We've got some great perks for supporters, including interviews, gifts, live discussions, and even items we pick up on our travels. For more, visit our website, AmericanCatholicHistory.org. Help us keep this going. Also, be sure to give us a five-star rating and a great review at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. These help others to find us. Today, we're talking about Maria von Trapp, the real Maria von Trapp. Yeah, and the truth is really quite different from the Julie Andrews Hollywood version that we all grew up on. As such stories usually go. But hey, Hollywood only has two or three hours to develop characters and deliver a plot. Trying to capture this entire incredible story in that short time would be impossible. Well, yeah. Also, some elements would just not have made for an enjoyable film. For starters, they didn't escape into Switzerland over the mountains while the Nazis were trying in vain to start their sabotaged cars. Well, for one thing, you can't escape to Switzerland over the mountains from Salzburg. Yeah. Yeah. Because (laughs) you're going into Germany and also there's Liechtenstein in the way if you're going directly from Austria. You know. You know, geography. Little things. Yeah. But in real life, they they actually boarded a train to Italy and simply left the country and everyone knew they were going to do it. Right. And another major change was the personality of Georg von Trapp. In the film, Christopher Plummer played a stern disciplinarian who suppressed all joy and music because of the death of his first wife. In real life, Captain Von Trapp was always a caring and tender father who enjoyed music. Of all the changes the film made, that was the one that made the family the most most upset. upset. Yeah. Yeah. There also were just great liberties taken with the timeline and the genders of the children. For example, the oldest Von Trapp child in real life was a boy, Rupert. And the second was a girl, Agatha. In the film, of course, the oldest is the strong-willed daughter, Liesel, and the second was a son named Friedrich. But all of those changes were to aid the storytelling magic. (laughs) So let's get into it and tell everyone about the real Maria von Trapp and her family. Sure. Maria Augusta Cuchera was born on January 26, 1905. She was raised in the mountainous Tyrol region of Austria, but at two years old, her mother died of pneumonia. Her grief-stricken father sent her to live with a cousin, and then her father traveled for the rest of his life. Maria only really saw him occasionally. He died when she was nine. This cousin eventually gave her to the guardianship of another relative known as Uncle Franz. Uncle Franz, it turned out, had some sort of mental illness, and he treated Maria very harshly, punishing her for things that she just didn't do. Yeah, and this turns a shy, quiet Maria into a troublemaker in high school because she figured, well, she might as well have fun if she was going to get in trouble and be punished anyhow. But she still earned very good grades. Uncle Franz also forbade her going to church. Her parents were Catholic and she was baptized. But Uncle Franz was a socialist and an atheist, and he forced Maria to mimic anti-Catholic slogans and to ridicule the church and everything it represented. She imbibed this and it became her reality. In her later teens, she enrolled in a teacher's college, and one day while there, she went to a Bach concert at a local Catholic church. Only it wasn't a Bach concert. It was Mass. Actually, it was Palm Sunday Mass. 
And the sublime beauty of the music, plus the wonderful preaching of the priest, opened her eyes. She was stunned to hear someone speak so beautifully about those Bible stories she'd learned to ridicule, and her heart was stirred. She began inquiries, and she returned to the Catholic faith. Upon graduation from the teacher's college when she was 18, she desired to enter religious life. She sought out the most demanding religious community she could find and applied for entry. This was the Benedictine Abbey of Nonberg in Salzburg. When she was being interviewed before being admitted, she was asked, Who sent you? Naturally, they were looking for a parish priest or a pious family member who had influenced her decision and sent her their way. She, being the headstrong young woman who had largely raised herself, scoffed and replied, No one sent me. If someone had tried to send me, I would not be here. I do not listen to anyone. An odd sentiment to express when you're trying to enter a religious community that will require a vow of obedience. Ah, yes. But they accepted her as a novice in 1924. The next two years were very, very difficult for her and for the Abbey. Yeah. This is the first point where the movie and the reality bear some similarity. In the film, the nuns sing, How do you solve a problem like Maria? Because Maria is depicted as this free-spirited novice who forgets herself and does her own thing. The real Maria was like that. Now, we have no evidence that she wore curlers under her wimple, but she did actually whistle the Gregorian chant tunes, very much against policy, and she would speak during silent times. She also would climb up on the roof of the abbey, among other offenses. She also suffered ill health because she was forced to stay indoors a lot, which she was not accustomed to. Normally, she was out and about hiking and enjoying the fresh air. So things were rough for her and for the abbey. But relief came in 1926. That year, a widowed sea captain, the 46-year-old Captain Georg von Trapp, father of seven children, asked the abbey for a tutor for one of his daughters. Captain von Trapp was an Austrian through and through, but he was born in 1880 in a village located today in Croatia. During his earlier life, his village was actually part of Italy, so he had Italian citizenship as well as Austrian. This would come in handy in 1938, but we're not going to get too far ahead of ourselves. No, not yet. A little more on Georg's biography. He had a distinguished career as a submarine captain in World War I, scoring the most kills of any submariner in the Austrian fleet. However, he was not, in fact, decorated personally by the emperor. By that point, the emperor, blessed Charles of Austria, had given up his royal duties. After World War I, the Austro-Hungarian Empire dissolved. Austria lost its coastline, so the Austrian navy was abolished. Now, when I was a kid, when I knew enough about the late 20th century European political boundaries, but not enough about what it all looked like at the beginning of the century, I was wondered how Captain von Trapp was an Austrian naval captain. Austria, as I knew it, was landlocked. Then I learned a bit more. Captain Von Trapp's first wife, Agatha, was the granddaughter of the man who invented the torpedo, so it was fitting that she married a submarine captain. After bearing their seven children, she died in 1924 of scarlet fever. So suddenly, Captain Von Trapp was without a navy, and he was the widowed father of seven. He moved the family to a villa just outside of Salzburg in 1926. In 1927, his daughter, Maria Francisca, the third of his seven children, was seriously ill, and though she was not in danger of death, she was unable to attend school as usual, so he wanted a tutor who could teach her in bed. The Abbey knew just whom to send. 
Maria, of course, had studied teaching in school, so she was well-suited to the task. And in a way, the rest is history. But fleshing out that history is what we're here for, so we'll keep telling the story. Maria initially worked with just Maria, Francisca. But she soon fell in love with the other six children as well. It didn't take long for the captain to recognize this tender affection and for him also to fall in love with her. In 1927, he asked her to marry him. But he didn't just ask her to marry him. He put it in terms of, would you be the new mother to my children? Maria initially fled back to the Abbey. So another point where the movie kind of got, got it right. She cared for the captain, but she was not in love with him. However, her superiors at the Abbey advised her that her religious duty was to marry the captain. So again, the movie got it somewhat right, though I doubt the order came from the abbess in the form of a dramatic aria about climb every mountain. (laughs) No, probably not. But the director probably did have some level of, um, you know, here's how you solve a problem like Maria. Yes. You know, (laughs) kind of like he's a good Catholic man. He's got kids already. You love the kids. You'll come to love their father. It's the perfect situation for you and for us. And as for her, she had said that her time in the Abbey, her two years there, were really necessary for untwisting her twisted personality and dealing with her outsized self-will. So they had been good years, but it was time to move on. So after marrying Georg, she later wrote that she did come to love him like she had never loved anyone before. And she admitted that his proposal was much easier to accept since he had put it in terms of being a new mother for my children. Even he recognized that uh, the main connection to begin with was the children. Yeah. Also, he and the children were her first stable experience of family life. And by all accounts, he was a very good man. So the irony here, in a sense, is that while in the movie Maria brought healing to Georg after the devastating loss of his first wife, in reality, it was Georg who helped Maria heal from the trauma of her unsettled and abusive childhood. Pretty cool, actually. Yeah. Maria and Georg were married in 1927 when she was 22 and he 47. Maria became stepmother to his seven children. In 1929, she gave birth to their first child together, Rosemarie. Two more children, Eleonore and Johannes, rounded out the family of 10 in 1930s. But the 1930s had a number of downs to go with those ups. For one, they lost nearly all of their their money in a bank failure in 1935. So rather than living on inherited wealth, they had to earn a living. First, they did this by renting out the majority of the rooms in their Salzburg estate. Then, Maria had the idea of making money through music. The family had always been musical, long before Maria came around, but she and a priest friend, Father Franz Wassner, who had come to live with them, organized a lot of them into a singing group. Father Wassner was their agent and financial manager. In 1935, they won the Salzburg Music Festival and became a popular touring act. They toured a bit, including shows in Vienna. During a concert swing through Munich, they encountered Adolf Hitler and actually declined an invitation to perform at his birthday party. Yeah, probably a good decision. Yeah. (laughs) But the clouds began to darken again, just as the Von Trapp family was beginning to find some brightness. In March of 1938, Germany annexed Austria in the Anschluss, as happened in the film. But... You'll note, the Anschluss happened 11 years after Maria and Georg married, 
not while they were on their honeymoon. After the Anschluss, life became more difficult for the von Trapps. Georg rejected Nazi ideology and refused to fly a Nazi flag at their home. He was offered a commission in the German Navy, a tempting offer for a man of his professional background, but his opposition to the Nazi program forced him to decline. He knew that his refusal could well lead to, being, to him being arrested, nothing so dramatic as, you know, summary execution for himself and the whole family, but very likely his arrest and incarceration. So he and Maria decided the thing to do would be to leave Austria and take their music show to the United States. Before they even left Austria, they already had signed a contract with an agent in America, so they knew where they were going, ultimately. But first, they just had to leave Austria. Well, remember that Italian citizenship? It extended to Maria and their then nine children. The 10th Johannes was born in the U.S. So they boarded a train in broad daylight and went to Italy. Right. They did not try to escape under cover of darkness, only to be caught and forced to sing at the music festival. They did not hide out in the Abbey graveyard and then hoof it over the Alps into Switzerland. No, it was all very public and known. They told people what they were doing. But the tension of the graveyard scene... That's a somewhat better story. Ah, yeah. From Italy, they came to the U.S., arriving for a six-month tour in 1938. They delighted audiences all over the States. During this tour, their 10th child, Johannes, was born, making him a U.S. citizen. When that six-month stay expired, they left for Europe, doing a musical tour in Scandinavia, and even returning to Salzburg for a time to see some friends. However, they couldn't stay in their own home in Salzburg because Heinrich Himmler had decided to use it as, as his headquarters. They returned to the U.S. to stay in 1939, settling on a large farm in Stowe, Vermont, which they bought in 1940. From there, they traveled and toured. Maria and the rest of the children became naturalized U.S. citizens during the 1940s, while Georg never petitioned for citizenship. During the summers when they were not touring, they held musical camps at their farm and opened their large 26-bedroom Trap Family Lodge to guests. So, hospitality and music became their thing. During World War II, the oldest two boys, Rupert and Werner, served in the U.S. Army. Georg von Trapp, after a long and full life, died in 1947 at 67 years old. After that, the Trapp family singers kept touring for seven more years, though some of the children were kind of over it and wanted to go do their own thing. But Maria was adamant. She kept the family group together as a touring group until 1954 by sheer force of will. It wasn't easy, of course. Rupert was born in 1911, so he was 27 when they came over to the U.S., and 36 when Georg died. Also, he was a trained medical doctor, and he and Werner had both been to war, so touring with the family musical act wasn't exactly his dream. Others of the children also bristled at Maria's absolute insistence that they all stick together. But they did so until finally splitting in 1954, as we said before. Yeah. During the 1950s, the story of the Trapp family, they had largely dropped the Vaughn here in the U.S., became more widely known because of Maria's book. Yeah, in 1949, Maria had published The Story of the Trapp Family Singers. In the early 1950s, she sold the movie rights, and two films were made based on the book in West Germany. Those movies led to the Broadway musical The Sound of Music, which premiered in 1950. And then in 1965, the movie itself was released based on the musical. Now, we've already mentioned a number of key differences between the movie and the real life family. Here's another one. They didn't grow up and become popular by singing 
catchy Rodgers and Hammerstein type tunes. The Trap family singers were really good, and they sang Sacred Polyphony, Madrigals, and other classic complex choral works. They were serious technical singers not Broadway actors. I love the music in the film, but I can appreciate why the trapped children would be a little put off by the depiction of them singing So Long, Farewell, of, and, you know, and like, Do, Re, Mi. Anyway, yeah, those songs. <laughs> After the family singing group broke up in 1954, Maria wrote another book. This time it was a compendium of traditions that had helped her keep her family grounded in their Catholic faith. The book, Around the Year with the Trapp Family, includes songs, personal recipes, prayers, and stories that relate to feasts, celebrations, and special occasions throughout the year. Foods appropriate to the various special days, songs to sing on holidays, anniversaries, birthdays, and the like. It's a charming and really very helpful book for those looking to observe the liturgical calendar with their whole family. Yeah, you actually have a couple copies of it, and we took some cues from it for our preparation for marriage. Yeah. So when I first encountered this book, I was in college, and I really enjoyed, and just I was really interesting, the part of the book where it talked about wedding preparation, marriage preparation. And one of the things that I found so interesting and, and thought was amazing was that the couple for marriage prep in Austria would take the entire week prior to the wedding as a retreat. So... I suggested that we should reserve some time before our wedding, a week or so before our wedding to take, well, not an entire week, but some time as a retreat time. Yeah. And we, yeah, we, we took the Saturday and Sunday, the week, weekend before our wedding weekend. And especially on Saturday, we just, we went to St. Anthony Chapel up in Pittsburgh, which is a beautiful place. We went to mass. We just had a wonderful time. We were like, no wedding preparation. We're not doing any planning or deciding or anything. We're just going to have some us time and some prayer time. And it was a wonderful time. It was great. And you mentioned St. Anthony Chapel. That was the first time I had been there. Um, and of course, we actually did an episode on the history of that chapel that has the largest collection of relics outside the Vatican on earth. It's amazing. Yeah, it was my second time there and I we haven't been back since then and that's a tragedy. We need to get there again. We do, we do. We told the story of how it came to be way back in episode 23. Check it out and if you're ever in Pittsburgh, go and visit. Anyways, that's just one example of great things that you can read in this little book. It's available via link on our website. So if you're interested, go find it there. Mm-hmm. In the late 1950s, Maria and three of her children moved to Papua New Guinea to be missionaries. Some of the older children remained in Vermont to manage the Trapp Family Lodge. Maria returned in 1965 to participate in the management of the lodge. She also was involved in the filming of the movie, but only a little, and only made about $500,000 on it. She did have an appearance as an extra in Salzburg, and she gave advice to the producers though they took almost none of it. Her thoughts on the finished product were mostly positive. She figured if it helped people to be better people, she could handle the liberties that the movie makers took. She spent the majority of her remaining years in Vermont working and managing the family lodge. She died in 1987 of heart failure and was buried next to her husband in the family graveyard on the grounds of the lodge. Since then, five more of the Von Trapp children have been buried with them. The Trapp Family Lodge remains an excellent four-season resort hotel owned and managed by members of the Trapp family. The only remaining Trapp child at this point is Johannes. He's the youngest of the ten, and he is currently 83 years old. But the legacy of the Trapp family is an example of a good Catholic family. They weren't perfect, but they loved one another greatly, maintained their faith, faced adversity together, and shared their joy with others. 
and Maria, the orphan raised as an atheist by an abusive uncle, was both the beneficiary of the tender love of her husband, as well as the driving force that propelled the family to international fame for all the right reasons. This has been American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media. If you enjoy American Catholic History, become a supporter on Locals or Patreon. Get information about both and the perks of being a supporter at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash support. Also, on our website, sign up for our newsletter, learn more about the Trap family, see our upcoming pilgrimages, and find other episodes. And be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy, and construction and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. We love getting your feedback and suggestions for episodes. You can email us at feedback at AmericanCatholicHistory.org. Find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash AmericanCatholicHistory. On Instagram at ACH underscore podcast. Or follow us on Twitter at ACH. 1513. I'm Noelle Hester Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media.